the book of John, John 4 through 26, and the text goes, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of good ground that Jacob gave his son to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have said to him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his son and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have in your, in your is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem, in this is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. All right, how's everybody doing? Kind of feels interesting. Can you turn the reverb down just a little bit? <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah, reverb up, please. That'd be perfect. 
Um, well, my name's Nick. Um, I've met basically everybody here in the room, so I'm pretty happy um, to see y'all here this afternoon. Um, yeah, so um, this is like my first time preaching ever, so your extension of grace I'm already appreciating. Um, but yeah, so these past several meetings, uh, we've been doing a sermon series on encounters with Jesus. And so what that means uh, for us, we want to learn who Jesus is and how he interacts in the everyday with everyday people like you and like me. Um, and John 4, um, as we've just read, one of my favorite texts in scripture, tells so much about who Jesus is and what he does for us. Um, but before we jump into our text, um, let me transport us back in time uh, to a blacktop that's not quite so far away uh, from our memories. The bell rings for recess. Um, you've been dreaming about this upcoming game of Friday kickball all week. So you sprint, sprint to the playground with great anticipation to do your pregame stretching, you know, your game planning, get your mind right for like this epic showdown that is about to happen. Um, when the rest of the kids make their way to the playground, um, you all line up against the building. You're tapping the brick wall behind you, trying to calm your nerves. The two most athletic kids step out, naturally, and start picking teams. The other athletes of the group, um, they are the first off the board, like the NFL draft, you know, top five picks. Um, and then all the other kids are being selected left and right. As each team starts to fill up, you think to yourself, man, I know I'm not the biggest or the fastest of the kids, but I did not think I'd be waiting here this long. Comes down to the last three. The person to your left and the person to your right are selected, and there you are standing all alone. Both teams have even numbers of players, and you're the odd one out. Another kid looks to you and says, well, there's always next week, but you're crushed. You're left alone. Just a spectator wishing with their whole heart to be out there on the field, being a part of the team. So as we work through this trauma that is arising uh, from our childhood memories, uh, unless you're Justin, who I'm sure was the tallest kid on the playground, always selected first. So Justin, we're, you're excluded from that group. Um, yeah, there is an unfortunate truth found here. Uh, and the truth is, just as we did when we were kids, in the worlds that we live in, we choose who is in or who is out. We look at somebody's qualities, be it their education level, nation of origin, skin color, gender, their charisma, and then we decide who gets to play and who gets to sit on the sidelines and watch alone, dejected and devalued. Well, in our text today, we see that although the world, ourselves complicit in this, seeks to decide who is in and who is out, Jesus is the one who ultimately decides who is in and who is out. Being the Messiah, Jesus meets us in our broken condition and redefines what it is to be in or to be out. He does this by choosing the very least of all humanity, seeing past the world's evaluation and honoring them with dignity and a place of honor at the table of grace. Let's look into our story again. Um, I'm going to run kind of narratively with us. You're free. You have it on the worship guide just to follow along with the story. We'll be looking at these aspects just from a various, various perspectives and, and seeing what Jesus really wants to teach us through this. So when we meet Jesus here in this story, he and his disciples are traveling from the southern end of Palestine, Judea. It's like the very southern tip 
um, if you can think about Palestine in, in your head. They're traveling to the north in Galilee. This is where Jesus was born, kind of his base of operations, where he grew up, kind of everything familiar. But sandwiched in between there was the region of Samaria. And the thing is, for the first century Jew, it says in your text, you know, they, there's no association. But the Jews in the first century called Gentiles dogs. Samaritans were somehow worse than that. They were the um, descendants of the wicked northern kingdom, if you know your history, who fell, and the Assyrian conquerors who inhabited that um, after, after they sacked, so, or sacked Israel, the northern kingdom. So they were considered half-breed perversions of the God community Israel, um, which, all that to say, that's intense words, but it's true. There is a real hostility here between the Samaritans and the Jews at this time, and it's hard to overstate that. That being said, no Jew really ever had to go through Samaria. You could kind of always go around, and that was the normal thing. But what's curious here is that Jesus chose to go through Samaria. And while he was there, he's taking a break at the well at the hottest part of the day, the sixth hour at noon. And as he's sitting there, this woman approaches Jesus, and Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Now, I'll pause here because if you're a first century person reading this, this interaction would have absolutely floored you. You would just be sitting there, jaw on the ground, like, what, the, what is happening right here? Um, but in the first century, hospitality was a huge facet of the honor-shame culture um, that permeated the whole Mediterranean world. And Jesus, addressing this woman, requesting a drink for her is entirely out of turn. In doing so, he is forcing her hand. If she says no, she brings shame upon herself. And what's more, she notices the outward uh, difference in their ethnicity. And she, she uh, brings that forward. She addresses their racial divide, saying, how could you, a Jewish man, ask me for a drink? I'm just a Samaritan, even then a Samaritan woman. In her mind, thinking, you must utterly despise me. I am nothing to you. So as we work our way through this narrative, you can just feel the intensity in the air, and it only seems to increase. Um, they're talking back and forth, but they seem to be talking right past one another, like two planes that will just never intersect. And so it, you just feel the intensity. Um, and she's, as she's talking about water, just trying to give this man a drink, Jesus kind of turns the tables and flips it and starts talking about this living water again, just missing one another. The tension's high, and if you were standing there in person, it would be hard to watch this. For those of you with secondhand embarrassment, my wife Natalie included, you would be like skin crawling, like wanting to hide under a rock, and just be like, all right, y'all figure that out. <laughs> I'll come back when it's not as tense. Okay. But yeah, so like that's what's happening here. It's so, and, and we, we kind of miss that, this, this intensity. But becoming more interested in Jesus' words, she asked Jesus for a drink of this living water, and he tells her to go and get her husband and come back. She does not have a husband. Jesus knows this. She's not married, but she's been married five times before. And now she's with a man who will not even marry her because of the situation she finds herself. By all measures, this woman could not be more down and out. This woman is the girl left on the playground alone. She may not have even gotten in line to play the game. Sorry, I get a little emotional. <laughs> she may not have even gotten in line to play the game in the first place. She's outcast, downtrodden, and forsaken. 
them gather myself, sorry. <laughs> she can't even go to the well at an appropriate time of day. It's high noon because of the shame that she carries on her shoulders and the judgment that has passed on her by everyone in her community. So by offering her this living water, Jesus is taking the mantle of her hurt in divine hospitality and honoring her dignity as a guest, he the host, at, her tab- at his table. He turns the table away from what others say she is to who he sh- says she- that she is. What Jesus does is remarkable here. He sees her not for everything that the world would count her out for, but he sees a person in need of healing, and he offers her just that. She is counted in, which illustrates the first point in our text, that it is Jesus who decides who is in and who is out, not the world. Jesus takes the least of us, and he counts them in. He sees beyond race, gender, ethnicity, past history, mistakes, flaws, all of that, and he counts us in. So if Jesus does that here to this woman in that place, where does that leave us? Jesus is demonstrating for us radical inclusivity. Because Jesus counts who is in or who is out, we cannot exclude anyone. It's simply not our job. Our task, instead, is to offer people that same love, life, and dignity that Jesus offers here at the well in the face of our differences, be it race, gender, education, sexuality, political affiliation, equally as important as not counting anyone else out, you cannot exclude yourself. You cannot ex- if you yourself cannot exclude anyone from relationship with Jesus, then you cannot exclude yourself either because Jesus being the Messiah is the one who counts us in. And we praise God for that. <laughs> so let us look back um, at the story of Jesus Messiah. We've been throwing around that word, entering the life unexpectedly of this woman here at the well. So after recognizing that Jesus is a special person, when he tells her about her own life, the woman shifts the conversation theologically. As we've seen in the text, she knows the history of her lineage, her ancestry, and she knows that one day a Messiah will come and explain everything to them. And Jesus looks at her in tenderness, and I love this, and he says, I, (laughs) the one with whom you are speaking, I am he. And so we see that because Jesus is Messiah, he is able to see her, know her fully, and give her dignity and status at the table of God's grace. That brings us to our second point today in our text. Jesus sees us and knows us because he is the Messiah. But what does it mean that Jesus is Messiah? We've been using that word, tossing it around. The woman even uses it later in the text. But Messiah means anointed one, a special person set apart for a special purpose. Um, And that that's where we get Hebrew Messiah and in the Greek, Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying anointed one, Messiah, Jesus Messiah. Um, Now, ancient Israel thought that the Messiah would be a special human who would conquer political powers, restore the nation to prominence after centuries and centuries and centuries of subjugation to all these foreign powers. But God did not anoint a human to redeem Israel. Rather, he sent his son, the very essence of Israel himself, to redeem all humanity. And this Messiah did not overthrow political powers, as people thought. Rather, he was an Emmanuel. He was a God with us. He came to live and to dwell and to draw near to us in relationship and offer us that healing. So looking at this story, 
Jesus demonstrates that his messiahship, or demonstrates his messiahship in a context that also seems to elude us here in the 24th, 21st century, not 24th, that'd be like a long time from now, gosh. Um, <laughs> so as we've just talked about, uh, this woman is the outcast of outcasts in her community. She would have been wearing a bright red letter A on her chest. She's labeled adulterous to the worst degree. Being a woman, in the ancient Mediterranean context, marriage was her only way of social mobility. It's the only way. And social protection from people who would try to oppress her otherwise. It was the only, only way. As well, she would have had extremely, extremely little, if any, agency at all in any of her divorces. So what we have here is not a harlot, but what we have is a woman who has been abused and manipulated by the men and the system that she was in. Likely by no doing of her own, she was tossed about, stripped of her dignity, and the only protections that she possibly could have had. So rather than calling out her sin, Jesus is calling out her pain. And he says to her, I know you. I know your situation. I'm here to bring you good and full life that has been taken from you. So rather than seeing her as a villain, Jesus sees her as a victim. And to this victim, he offers living water. Jesus himself, his blood shed for her so that she could have a relationship with the Father, and one that extends for eternity, eternal life, and a life in the Spirit. Jesus here is offering her a family that can never be taken away. So Jesus demonstrates his knowledge of this woman, her story, and what she's experienced, and he makes sure that she is fully known despite the shame that she carries. In the same way, Jesus fully knows us and sympathizes with us in every way, especially in our suffering and in the pain that this world brings. It is in this need and hurting that Jesus seeks us out. He comes to us, he pursues us, and he helps us by offering that good full life, living water that starts now and continues forever, just the same way. This is Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the God that draws near. So the question is, how are you experiencing that truth, that Jesus, as Messiah, he sees you, he knows you, and he offers help to you? What burdens might you be carrying that you just can't seem to lay down? How has life come to knock you down? How do you feel neglected? Maybe you're carrying wounds from a parent, a former relationship, friendship, a spouse that you're with every day. It could be that you're dealing with infertility or the wounds for trying for so long. Maybe you've lost your job or left with financial, financial insecurity in the wake of the pandemic and all that that's brought. Or maybe even you've been hurt by a church or other Christians or other people claiming to be such. Wherever you find yourself and whatever you find yourself with, Jesus is seated before you at the well of living water that quenches all thirst. And he's saying, I know you. I know all your hurt. I see you and your experience. I know how you're oppressed. I love you. I have the best for you. Now let me take your hands, and I'll help you walk with me. So how would your life be different if, from this text, Jesus really is who he says he is? 
Jesus doesn't necessarily just draw near to us in our pain or our outcastness or our exclusion based on someone else's assessment or out of pity. He does it because he's experienced it. Jesus was also the lonely kid on the playground. He was condemned to die by his own people. He bore the shame on the cross, and he overcame death from rising from the grave and ascending to the right hand of the Father so that he could declare our inclusion. Again, if Jesus really is who he says he is, how would you seek to know Jesus more? How would you love people more radically? How would you find that woman? How would you offer up your pain to the one who wants to receive it and take it from you? How would our city and our community look if we embraced this Jesus Messiah? I can tell you it would look really, really good. The God who does not exclude but includes is this Jesus Messiah. And he's here calling you, saying, I love you, I know you. Take a drink of this living water.